Let us pray. Thank you, God, for good news. Thank you, God, for Easter. And that Easter isn't just one day, but every day because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Here we are in Eastertide, in the glow of the resurrection of Jesus. And yet, there's fear and doubt and sadness and questions and uncertainty and unknowns about the future expressed from his disciples, Jesus's closest friends. I've always been struck by this. First, that those closest to you may not truly understand you, may not believe you, may take the longest to actually digest the truth in their heads and hearts. And second, that the resurrection and the risen Christ often stir fear and more questions, not necessarily certainty and a clear strategic plan with three steps for a successful life. When Jesus shows up, things get stirred up. When the risen Lord appears among the disciples and, and says, peace be with you, the very opposite happens. The disciples were startled and terrified by a greeting of peace and thought that they were seeing a ghost. Jesus has to ask them, why are you frightened and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Questions arise when Jesus arrives. So often we, we think answers come with Jesus and easily throw around cliches like Jesus is the answer. That maybe Jesus is the divine question, the incarnate one in whose presence our life, our priorities, our purposes, our thinking, and our acting are questioned. So that we have to reevaluate who we are and, and what we believe. When Jesus shows up, things get stirred up. He unsettles the disciples. So doubts are a part of the life of faith and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But that's not all. After Jesus tries to prove that he isn't a ghost, but flesh and bones with hands and feet, we hear that while in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. The disciples experienced disbelief and had questions in light of everything, but they also had joy. In their joy, they were disbelieving. Doubts occurred at the same time as joy. To be clear, often in faith, there's not a sweet, clean movement from fear and doubts to joy. Often the experience of joy comes amid the fear and doubts. Joy amid the mess of the world or your family situation. Joy amid questions about the future and what work life or church life will be like post-pandemic. 
Experiencing joy doesn't mean everything in life or in your mind is settled. We don't have to understand everything or have it all figured out to experience joy like the disciples did. In their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. This reminds us that perfection in any form is not a prerequisite for joy. The disciples are freaked out in the presence of the risen Lord and yet have joy even when not fully comprehending the resurrected one in their midst. This is faith's tension. Writer and poet Khalil Gibran reminds us of joy's tensive relationship to sorrow in one of his poems. Then a woman said, Speak to us of joy and sorrow. And he answered, Your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is not the cup that holds your wine the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? And is not the lute that soothes your spirit the very wood that was hollowed with knives? When you are joyous, look deep into your heart and you shall find it is only that which has given you sorrow that has given you joy. When you are sorrowful, look again in your heart and you shall see that in truth you are weeping for that which has been your delight. Some of you say joy is greater than sorrow and others say nay, sorrow is the greater. But I say unto you, they are inseparable. Together they come. And when one sits alone with you at your board, remember that the other is asleep upon your bed. Verily you are suspended like scales between your sorrow and your joy. Only when you are empty are you at standstill and balanced. When the treasure keeper lifts you to weigh his gold and his silver, needs must your joy or your sorrow rise or fall. Like sorrow and joy, disbelief and joy are inseparable in the life of a disciple. The disciples' joy rises out of the deep sorrow they had when they thought Jesus was dead forever, but now he showed them otherwise. And the way he shows them he's alive is reassuring for those of us on earth because Jesus doesn't demonstrate his resurrection life through the world of disembodied ideas and concepts. Divine revelation, even after resurrection, is grounded in the concrete, ordinary, bodily, fleshy, tangible materiality of everyday earthly life. Jesus shows up in the flesh, connecting the spiritual and physical realms. So the holy can be holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, experienced in this world. The resurrection happened in this world. Thus is experienced in this world through physical realities, including the body of Jesus. Jesus makes this point clear as he attempts to convince the disciples that he isn't a ghost. Look at my hands and my feet. 
See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is the affirmation of a bodily resurrection, a, a body that has blood-stained scars on hands and feet, a flesh and blood God, not a disembodied ghost. Jesus doesn't present a philosophy of death and life or a lengthy treatise on the logic of resurrection. His physical body is proof of his resurrection and shows them what resurrection life looks like. His resurrection is sensory, engaging all human senses. Multiple times, he tells them to see and he calls them to touch him. Hearing is, is involved too because they're talking even when he opens their minds to understand the words of the scriptures. Taste and smell come into play when Jesus asks them if they have anything to eat, which Peter Marty says is like asking if there's anything in the fridge. When Jesus eats a, a piece of broiled fish, that tasty tilapia, we can almost smell bodily resurrection. This is no ghost, but our incarnate God who may even enjoy fish and chips and broken bread and wine. It's as if Jesus is reminding them, reminding us, I'm here in this world with you. Bones and body, scars and all, an incarnate foodie in the fleshy material world. Debbie Thomas says that Jesus turns trauma into communion. This is no ghost. This is God in the flesh making all things new so that when we see, taste, touch, smell, and hear, we can sense the newness of resurrection because as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, the Lord is near. I'm here in this world with you. Christ's presence in the world among us through the Spirit may startle or cause disbelief, but it is also a source of joy. Joy in this world, not another. That's a promise of resurrection. Joy now and later, amid all the earthly mess, by participating in the gift of life with all of our senses, conversing with each other and Jesus, eating together and breaking bread, opening up the scriptures through words and meals and the things of the earth, Christ is present to us. As the psalmist tells us, we can taste and see that the Lord is good. We can touch and see that the Lord is good. We can smell and see that the Lord is good. We can hear and see that the Lord is good. This is a type of synesthetic salvation. Frederick Buechner puts it artfully. You pull the shade on the snow falling, white on white, and the child comes to life for a moment. There is a fragrance in the air, a certain passage of a song, an old photograph falling out from the pages of a book, 
the sound of somebody's voice in the hall that makes your heart leap and fills your eyes with tears. Who can say when or how it will be that something easters up out of the dimness to remind us of a time before we were born or after we will die? Do not try to recount the gospel, he says, with the high magic taken out, the deep mystery reduced to a manageable size. Tell the truth that is beyond telling. Christ's ministry is among the mundane in this sensory world, and it's a deep mystery. So you don't have to look too far for his presence in our midst. Look at your own body, even with its aches and pains and scars in a hospital room. And it is a temple of the Holy Spirit of Christ. Look at and, and smell the, the warm baguette bread and French wine at a little cafe table. And there you have Holy Communion. Offer or receive a cool drink when thirsty on a hot North Carolina summer day and Christ is in our midst. The sights and sounds and touch and taste and smells of creation can all draw us closer to an encounter with Jesus, the crucified, risen Lord, who is near. I'm here in this world with you, Jesus says, during a pandemic. It's a mystery that stirs lots of disbelief and lots of joy, a joy that Jesus brings at his birth and at his ascension in the Gospel of Luke. So whether he's coming or going or whether at the beginning or the ending, the bookends of life in Jesus are joy in this world. When I've lost my direction, you're the compass for my way. You're the fire and light when nights are long and cold. In sadness, you are the laughter that shatters all my fears. When I'm alone, your hand is there to hold. You are why I find pleasure in the simple things in life. You're the music in the meadows and the streams, the voices of the children, my family and my home. You're the source and finish of my highest dreams. Jesus, you're the center of my joy. All that's good and perfect comes from you. You're the heart of my contentment, hope for all I do. Jesus, you're the center of my joy, even when I disbelieve. Amen.